Yes, happy Father's Day, Christ Church. So who is behind the screen when you're talking about someone? <laughs> I think that would be a scary sort of thing. We're so glad you're here with us today. I'm Dave Bianchin. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And if you're with us online or here in the sanctuary, it's great to be worshiping together on this day. We are um, at the end of our series on Philippians, uh, one of my favorite books, and I'd like to read to you this section from chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So listen to God's Word. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. Again, we're glad to recognize Father's Day. We're going to have uh, some time of prayer at the end of the service about that, but I'm just so glad to welcome you today. As we work toward the end of our, our series, the theme of the series has been Philippians 1.27, which says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. I've gotten stuck on that word worthy quite a bit. I don't know about you, but I rarely feel worthy of the gospel. Don't we find ourselves kind of explained or identified in certain ways in our lives? And sometimes that's good, and sometimes I don't feel quite so good about it. If you come to the church and, and are looking for me, you'll find um, on my office door a name tag which gives my title and my word is work as visitation pastor, and that's my name tag, which you would see as well, and my business card has the same sorts of things on it. So that identifies me in a certain way. So I like those positive identifications, but I'm not so good on the ones that aren't quite so positive. I went to a wedding not too long ago, and I went to my nameplate for dinner, and this is what my nameplate described me as. <laughs> I wasn't quite so happy about that. Um, <laughs> so I'm not worthy, but I'm really not chicken either. <laughs> you know, friends, life is hard. Um, we have losses in life. We have difficult relationships. There are circumstances that cause deep concern and worry. And we all fight influences that lead us away from living that life that is worthy. As Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he does so in prison. Pastor Dan gave a wonderful background on Philippians last week. I want to point out one more thing about the church in Philippi. If you'll notice the book of Philippians, you'll find, unlike most of Paul's other letters, no quotes from the Old Testament. This was very much a Gentile church. There was no Jewish background to the church, and that's important because think about what that background brings. 
For the Philippians, there was no Ten Commandments, no warning from the prophets about how to live a responsible life, no wisdom literature to guide in a godly sort of way. So as Paul introduces the Christian faith to this church that he loves so much, he's concerned that they follow in the way that has been part of all of salvation history, bridging from the law and the prophets into the New Testament, Jesus' work and Paul's work as well. So he's concerned. He's concerned for the church, for individual believers, but he's also concerned for the church as a whole, that the church would be healthy. So in his last reflections on faith and on life, what the NIV calls these final exhortations uh, of Paul's ministry, we find three things that I think are really important, and I want to look at those three things this morning. The first is that we are to be reconciled with each other just as God has reconciled us to Himself. So as God has reconciled us to Him, that's supposed to ripple off into our lives and our relationships with other Christians. Secondly, we are given the opportunity in Christ to rejoice, rejoice throughout our entire lives because a very core value, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. That's normative for us to live into. God has promised it to us. And finally, related to those two things, we are called to engage with things that develop a godly character and remind us of the need to reconcile and the opportunity to rejoice. I'd like to look at those three things this morning on this Father's Day. Paul begins by reminding us to be reconciled to those in our lives. He focuses on two very prominent church leaders, uh, two women named Yodia and Syntyche, and he focuses on them and makes them, in a sense, an illustration of the call to be reconciled to each other. Now, why does he publicly do this? Because whether in leadership or, or just being part of the body, our relationships with each other affect the entire church. And when we are reconciled to each other and we're moving through problems and pain and challenges and crises, it benefits the entire church because the church then sees that reconciliation is possible. We can work through issues. We can get along with each other. So they're not only an illustration, but it's important to the life of this church that they be on the same page again. Tomorrow we will celebrate, we will observe Juneteenth. You know that legislatively it, was, it originated in Galveston, Texas. And it's been celebrated annually on June 19th in various parts of the United States since 1865. That's the legislative reality. But the relational reality in our world is that that work's not done. The work of reconciliation, the work of, of deep fellowship with one another across racial lines, that's an ongoing challenge for us. And we as Christians who celebrate what Paul said that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. I hope the holiday tomorrow, as you reflect upon that, causes you to reflect upon those areas in your and on my life where we need to step across lines and we need to be reconciled and in good friendship with one another. It's an important day and it reminds us how far we have yet to go. And in general, it's a tragic reality that we live broken lives in regard to each other. You can think about relationships in your life, family members, neighbors, co-workers, where, where things could be addressed in such a way that reconciliation could happen. Minor conflicts, misunderstandings oftentimes grow into anger. They grow into sin, and as James says, that sin then leads to death. 
It's incumbent upon us to do something about that, both these relational issues and the larger issues of reconciliation in the world. Jesus, in fact, said to us that we can't truly move forward in our worship until we've been reconciled to those around us. These are his words for us in Matthew chapter 25, verses 21 through 24. Jesus said, you have heard it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means fool, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So our worship is not complete if we're estranged from one another. And as we move toward that reconciliation, we find so many blessings, both personally and for our body as a whole when we do that. Matter of fact, Paul described us as ministers of reconciliation. Some other words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us that message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So Jesus invites us to that reconciliation. Paul reminds us that it's part of our identity as believers. So who do you need to be reconciled to? Think about that, friends, as we move from here today. The second thing Paul says, as well as being reconciled to others, is to trade our worry for the power of prayer. So before moving on to that issue of rejoicing, which we love to get to, I mean, that promise is so wonderful, let's address the wish issue of worry or anxiety. It's everywhere. I think that it is ramped up to new levels in our day and age, even recently. It can be debilitating for some people. It's not to be taken lightly because it, it finds itself weaving into every relationship and every decision that we make. And it's not healthy when we're always in an anxious state. And what Paul says here is that worry causes inaction. It freezes us. And it doesn't enable us to move forward then into moving toward solutions to problems or making things better. So Paul invites us to act, to trade worry for the power of prayer. And he invites us to pray specifically, not just, oh Lord, make my day better, <laughs> but to identify those relationships, those challenges, and specifically hand those to God. And I think what happens when we do this is that we're unburdening ourselves specifically, and we're also then on the lookout for how God's going to answer that specific prayer in our lives. So what Paul gives us is both a method and a promise that we can trade our anxiety for the power of prayer. And I want to suggest to us it's not just prayers, but what Paul is suggesting is a life of prayer, of consistently giving to God, 
those challenges in our lives. Now, what we call the so-called foxhole prayers, those are, those are okay. We can offer those. But Paul wants us to be moving our life so much into the life of our Lord that we give to Him everything that challenges us. It's hard for us because we get stuck in the worry mode. I will confess to you, I certainly do. My mom used to call me a worry wart, another description for me. It's not on my name tag, but it ought to be perhaps. So remember that Paul writes this as a general letter to the congregation and a letter which reminds us to share our burdens and our worries with one another, to pray together, and when we're not together, to pray for each other, to recognize the, recognize the communal aspect of rejoicing as we hold each other up in the power of prayer. One of my favorite movies through the years is the, the comedy movie Waking Ned Divine. Uh, just a really funny movie. I enjoyed it very much. But these two older Irish gentlemen are in this relationship with just great friendship with one another. And Jackie says of his friend Michael, when we grew, he says, we grew old together, but when we laughed, we grew younger. And that's what good relationships do. They, they bring us away from the debilitating worry and move us then into the opportunity for prayer. Paul says that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. You'll find that in Galatians. Joy is to be normative for us. So let's not miss the opportunity to receive that joy from the Lord by pushing aside, giving to God our anxiety. One of my friends many years ago in a retreat where we were talked about praying to God and unburdening ourselves. And Dale said, we need to picture, this is a visual for us, we need to picture these burdens and these anxieties in our hands. And when we pray, to let them go and to give them to God. Now, Dale said the problem is that many of us put those anxieties there, and then we still hold on to a couple of them. But we're called to let them all go, to give them all to the Lord, that God might then bear those for us and with us, and as a Christian community, to bear those with us. So let's be reconciled to each other. Let's trade worry for the power of prayer. And then what I think feeds those two things very specifically, we're called to engage with things that build godly character. A life that is healthy enough to work for reconciliation and a life that trades anxiety for rejoicing needs to be nurtured. It doesn't happen automatically, and it sometimes needs a lot of help to get there. It can't happen with being fed, so to speak. So Paul says, focus on what's excellent, Focus on what's praiseworthy. And that's what is a life that honors God, that we focus on those things in our lives which move us toward Him. You don't need me to tell you that we live in a dangerous world, a very dangerous world. What's obvious is the violence around, the prejudice, the lust, the greed, the anger, the fear. What's more insidious but equally dangerous is propaganda that passes off as truth, ignoring real needs in the lives of other people, not communicating fully, and lacking relational depth. And I feel like so many of us in this world dance on the edges of being isolated and being adrift. And we need renewal, and one of the key things for renewal is what we feed our minds. Paul said to the church in Rome, therefore be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how do our minds get renewed? I think what Paul gave us in this passage today in chapter 8 is very much the truth. So let me read to you a different version of it in Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. 
He writes, summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. So we need to seek those things. And you can look at this list, and I would encourage you to do so. Seek those things in your life which raise us up and elevate us and lead us, pointing us to God and God's values. Spend time in God's Word. Make that the axiom of your life. Mine it for the treasures that it is. Read it every single day. Because on the other side of things, we are pummeled by other influences. And so we need to avoid that. We need to know what to avoid, to don't watch things, don't focus on things that stimulate such thoughts. Because those things drag us down and they debilitate us and they distract us from the things that God wants to raise us up to and, and heal us with and bless us with. One of my favorite literary characters is Sherlock Holmes. And we're not going to engage in a mystery here this morning. But he's talking with Watson, his buddy, in A Study in Scarlet, which is the very first of the, of the Conan Doyle stories on him. And Watson is talking about the solar system. And Sherlock says to Watson, I don't care about the solar system. And Watson says, how can you not care about the solar system? And Holmes says this. You see, he explained, I consider that a man's brain originally is like a little empty attic, and you have to stock it with such furniture as you choose. A fool takes in all the lumber of every sort that he comes across, so that the knowledge which might be useful to him gets crowded out, or at best is jumbled up with a lot of other things, so that he has difficulty laying his hands upon it. Now, the skillful workman is very careful indeed as to what he takes into his brain attic. He will have nothing but the tools which may help him in doing his work, but of these he has a large assortment, and all in the most perfect order. It is a mistake to think that that little room has elastic walls and can distend to any extent. Depend upon it. There comes a time when for every addition of knowledge, you forget something that you knew before. It is of the highest importance, therefore, not to have useless facts elbowing out the useful ones. Now, I'm not a cardiologist or a, a neurologist, and I don't know if the brain does have its limits. I know mine does. But what I focus on in Holmes' quote is the quality of things, the quality of things that come to us as we're thinking, as we're, as we're navigating our way through life. And there are so many things that our world pushes on us that clutter out the good and the noble, the reputable, the authentic, and the beautiful. And we need to push those away. There's no reason for us as Christians to fill ourselves with those things when we have other things which can help us to follow God more faithfully. So what are you putting in the attic of your mind? So let me wrap things up here. Um, three questions for you. With whom do you need to work on reconciliation issues? How can you consistently add prayer to your life on a daily basis? And what are you putting in the attic of your mind? What can you increase? What can you decrease? On this Father's Day, we've had wonderful examples of fathers who have nurtured us. Many of us have had mentors in the Christian faith who have helped us as well. So think about those who have brought out the best in your life. Be reconciled to folks. Choose joy over anxiety as you pray and receive. 
Fill your life with those rich, deep, and noble thoughts that God makes available to us through his word and through the beauty of the world. This is one of those most important of New Testament passages, I think, because if this was one that was memorized, it would give us access at every moment at some of the great priorities of life. But maybe one of my favorite things at all, uh, as well about this passage is that Paul talks about the peace of God being in our hearts. And then he ends by saying that the God of peace will be with us. So there is that attribute, that fruit of the Spirit that we can have, the peace of God. And it happens as we ask the God of peace to walk closely with us each and every day. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, we are so thankful this day that you are the God of peace. We're thankful that you have provided your word and the companionship of your Holy Spirit to help us through our lives. You have blessed us with the fellowship of the church and for many of us families that have encouraged us as well. So Lord, may we give all that we have to you in prayer. May we move to reconciliation with one another and may we engage our minds in that which is lovely and beautiful and godly. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.